Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode 630 for March 14th, 2020. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth 92 of X. And we get to finally talk about uh, our homework. Is that right? That is indeed correct. So we are catching up on my sample solution to the install to the challenge we set way back in installment 89. Which got farther and farther away in time, or further and further away in time, depending on your, your religion there on that that word. So um I've had a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. So it's gonna be interesting to see how you solved it. And uh I, I may interject with some of the stuff I did. Well, I hope so, because in keeping with our new style here, I'm not going to go through my code line by line. I'm going to talk about the big picture decisions I made and my logic behind making them. And I am hoping you'll pick my brains a bit about that and make me dig in a bit deeper as appropriate. Um, and I'm perfectly happy to dig into the specific code as needed, but I, I, I don't want to do that old fashioned. And then I wrote this line of code and then I wrote this <laughs> line of code because... Oh, that's just not relevant anymore, right? We've moved on. We're now writing web apps. Like, this is a fully blown web app with two distinct interfaces within it. Like, there's actually, this is two web apps in one at this stage. So, you know, this is serious code. And so we can't go through it line by line. We'd, we'd be here all day. I feel a little bit like a developer. You are. Woo-hoo. You have developed, <laughs> you have developed a real world app. I mean... You know, if it was real, real world, we'd have a designer to, to prettify it after us. But we have done the development work for a true web app. You know, stick a cheap ad on it and you can make some money. <laughs> you know, I actually showed mine to two different people who then said, hey, send me that URL. I need that. It's like, really? <laughs> it's actually useful. And they both were like, well, yeah, I, I need that. You know, I, that, I'm going to use that for work. One guy said. It's. Yeah, I actually think I probably should put mine somewhere because I like it enough that I'm going to use it if no one else mm-hmm. does. Anywho, so the last time we left our currency converter, we had updated our card-based metaphor to the point where we could have a text box to enter any number and then convert from the base currency to all of our target currency. So the idea is that for every base currency you're interested in, you have a card, and that card, sort of like a top trumps card, it lists that currency's conversion against a whole bunch of destination currencies. And then I wanted, you know, we have the ability to enter an arbitrary amount of the base currency to see it in all the different currencies. And we had an interface for adding more cards, so we have more base currencies, and an interface for toggling on and off each of the rows of our top trumps. So do we care about the comparison to the... New Zealand dollar, say, sorry, Alistair, um, or do we not care? And so we can toggle it on or off, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is a metaphor for dealing with currency conversions, right? It's a sane model for representing this information. But another model, another method for re- representing the same underlying information that you'll often see on the web is a table, where you basically have all of your currencies on on both of your axes of of a, of a grid, and the conversion is sort of read like you would read some sort of you know a logarithm table or something from if you're old enough to have done 
calculations by logbooks instead of uh, using calculators. Oh, the good old days. Um, <laughs> I, good old I days. think of it, of it being like the the grid you get on a map in the old days when we had paper maps mm. where you could say, okay, I'm in California. How, how far is it from San Francisco to L.A.? And then you could go, you know, L.A. to San Diego on the same thing, but it was a grid you draw, drew your fingers across. Ah, yes, 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 exactly. That kind of exactly that kind of lookup table. And you would have all the cities on the top and all the cities repeated down the side. And the distance between California and whatever would be you go California on the row and that's not a city. But anyway, you get the idea. Yeah, you read of a row in a grid and it tells you the distance. Yeah. Exactly. So you could do that with currencies. And so the challenge was to take our existing fully functional card-based currency converter, not break it. Continue to retain that functionality and add the ability to see the same information on that grid and to toggle over and back between the grid view and the card view. You should have told us the not break the first page part because there were many times I had that one broken. (laughs) I'd look back and it's doing nothing over there. Because I had two motivations for setting this challenge. The obvious motivation is it's been ages since we practiced with tables. And I just wanted to give everyone an opportunity to pray with some tables because I, I sometimes think that my message that tables are not to be used for layout is misheard as tables are not to be used. Yeah. And so I keep on saying tables are for tabular data. And so it's like, ooh, some tabular data. I know. Let's make everyone play with tables. <laughs> that was the obvious motive here. My more, uh, I won't say underhand, but my more subtle motive was to teach a programming life lesson. It's probably easier to build an entirely separate web app to do the conversion table than it is to retrospectively add a feature you had never considered into pre-existing code. Hmm. So I expected you to break everything when you tried to do this, because that's what happens on planet Earth. In the real world, when that customer comes to you and says, so yeah, thanks very much, that app does exactly what we wanted. But now we wanted to do this as well. That is one of the single most difficult things to do because you didn't design the app to do both. You designed it to do one thing and now it has to be retrofitted to be able to accommodate. It's like putting a fourth story on a three-story house. Did you build a foundation with four stories in mind? Probably not. I don't know that I embraced that lesson, Bart. Because as soon as I got the panes working so that I had the two separate panes, I was able to just ignore the cards for, you know, like a month. Well, that's why when it went you back, they were that, broken sometimes. You but I know that's not true because you said that you regularly had side effects where you tried to use an ID and find that it was having a spooky action at a mm. distance and you know their pain. No, I don't, I don't actually do much with IDs, believe it or not. In, in, or classes. In you definitely classes, described yeah. to me at one stage... You know, doing something on your grid view, having a side effect on your card view. Yeah, I yeah. There, there, there was a, there happen. was a little bit of that, but I didn't. Uh, the, the nice thing was I had all of the data I needed to make my grid. You were a step ahead of me on that front. Okay. Because my my original model was working off the idea that as soon as you added a card, then at that point did an AJAX request to the web service to get the conversions for that new card. And that's fine for cards, but a grid needs it all, needs everything. And so my model simply was not suited at all to a grid, whereas your model was, because you fetched everything and then just showed the appropriate card. Okay, okay. 
So the first phrase I want to introduce, or I want to reintroduce, I'm sure I mentioned it, but uh, the, the first phrase that I think is very appropriate to this assignment is refactoring. So refactoring means changing what code, it's changing how code does something without changing what it does. So when you refactor correctly, the you know whether it's the users of your API or whether it's the users of your web app or whatever whoever you consider your users to be, they shouldn't notice anything change when you refactor because if they do, it wasn't refactoring; it was some sort of a redesign. Okay. Right. So a refactoring doesn't change the outside, whatever whatever you consider to be the outside that should stay the same, and you're making internal changes. You know, proverbially strengthening the foundation in preparation for that fourth story. Gotcha. Gotcha. Some sort of internal restructuring to make future changes possible. And what I found was because I had to completely redesign how my code worked, like every event handler had to be redone from scratch because we weren't, you know, doing Ajax requests, waiting for promises to fulfill. All we were doing was fetching everything once, doing all the math to do the appropriate conversion. And then just hiding and showing things. Right. Which is completely different to how my code works. Okay. Okay. So I spent three quarters, or maybe two thirds, somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of my time refactoring before I started a single line of new code. I love that this was hard for you. That makes me really happy. <laughs> well, I'm not sure hard is quite fun. The, you know, it, it certainly was that because the end result of all that refactoring is much better code. Okay. And that better code was then in a, in a place where it took me very little time to do the grid. I did the grid in uh, an evening. Oh, wow. But the foundation laying made that possible, and the foundation laying took ages. Well, I have some suggestions so, for you to make it a lot harder to make the grid. <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> So the first thing I had to do was change my whole model and to switch from, now you, you proved this was possible because you've done it like this all along, but with some simple arithmetic, you can get from the set of rates for any one currency to the set of rates for all currencies. And it's down to two simple pieces of mathematics. So the first thing to know is that the rate from currency B to currency A is the reciprocal of the rate from currency A to currency B. Now, if your high school maths is about as rusty as mine, um, the reciprocal of A is 1 divided by A. So, if we know that the rate from euro to dollar is 1.11, then the rate from dollar to euro is 1 divided by 1.11, which is about 0 0.9, which happened to be the exchange rates as I was writing the show notes. Okay. That part, so that part was easy for me. That, that part was easy for me. <laughs> yeah, I got there pretty quick too. But then I started to have a bit more trouble. Um, so what that means is that immediately we have some master currency. We get the rates for that. We just divide each rate by, or we take one and divide it by each rate. And we now have the reverse rates for all of those conversions. So that fills in a bit more of our grid. But that's not enough to fill in the full grid. So to get the rest of the way, we need to know Second piece of mathematics, rates can be multiplied together. So if I know the rate from currency A to currency C and the rate from currency C to currency B, then the rate from A to B 
is just those two rates multiplied together. Absolutely. I, I, I so do. If I, we know how to reverse. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, I, I've, I am fascinated that, that uh, you and Dorothy picked one way to do it and I picked the other way to do it. And it never even occurred to either of us to do the opposite. It, yeah, it, I know. I, I, it, it never crossed my mind that I would go get them one at a time. Well, I, I already have them. I have all the numbers. All I got to do is multiply them. That's all I got to do. I'm done. You're the one who keeps saying you're bad at math. Well, you're so no, I'm not bad at math. I'm bad at arithmetic in my head. I can't add two numbers. I can't subtract two numbers. I knew calculus. Ah, so that's what the computer's for. Right. But I mean, okay. can't, can't do a tip to save my life, but I can do calculus without any trouble. So what are you going to do? So putting those two simple pieces of mathematics together, we can take our rates from any arbitrary master currency and get all the other rates. So if we pick the euro as the master currency, say, and we want to get from British US dollars to British pounds through the euro. Well, we know how to get from euro to US dollars because that's what was in the raw data. We just get the reciprocal of that. And now we know how to get from dollars to euro. And we already know from the raw data how to get from euro to British pounds. So if we multiply our reciprocal by the rate we got originally, hey presto, we're done. We now have the rate from dollar to pound, having gone through the euro. So that's it. That gives us the ability to get every rate, as you've been doing since day one. Yep. So while refactoring everything to make it work with this maths instead of lots of separate fetches, um, I also decided that I should take this logic and break it out into its own function. So for completeness, I've included the entire function called load currency rates in the show notes. And basically, it does its Ajax fetch. Then it does its various, it stores the euro stuff, since that's its originals. And then it goes and it calculates everything else based on those euro rates it's just stored. And the function as a whole, by the time it does all of its, you know, Ajax call and its storage and its conversions and a little bit of checking and some nice comments, it looks quite long. But if you cut out all the glop and just get down to the actual mathematics here, it's basically three lines of code. Right, basically. right. I spent most of my lines of code taking arrays and turning them into objects in the back end arrays and the back end objects again. That's what 90% of my code does. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a couple of circular logics going on in there that I've never found. It's possible there's a more direct route, <laughs> but it works. Yeah. Um, so while I was busy reorganizing everything, I also came to the conclusion that the code was already big enough that it probably should have been broken up before, but it sort of got there in a boiling the frog sort of way because it started off as a very simple currency converter with, you know, the cards were just there and the user couldn't add or remove them and there was no concept of, you know, typing in a number and doing live conversion. So the code started off much simpler. And so my structures for the code were extremely simplistic. Basically, all the logic was sitting in the event handlers. Most of the logic, anyway. Hmm. And that's not particularly maintainable. How do you find the code that does a certain thing if it's not in a sensibly named function? It's just in a pile of glop in an event handler attached to a thing. Okay. That's not manageable code. And then you're going, and now i got to inject into this organically grown Weasley house of code 
sort of how like how I like to imagine code that's grown over time. Like you know the Weasley house in Harry Potter was like a bit sticking onto it at impossible angles. Or organically grown Weasley kind of code. I like it. <laughs> you get what I mean, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We've all done it. So I thought, right, well, I have to gut this code anyway to make it follow a whole different model. There's enough of it here that it should be structured in a sane and sensible way. So I took the opportunity to break all of the pieces out under their own sensibly named functions so that I could actually see what I was doing. And a good side effect of that is that your event handlers then become much more Englishy. Because your event handlers then spend most of their time calling functions that have sensible names. So instead of 30 lines of code to actually show the correct currency card or whatever, you just have show currency card conversions, show grid currency, you know, these sensibly named functions instead of line after line after line of code. And so then you can say, well, what happens if I click on this button? Oh, I do this, 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 and this. And so on the whole, you end up with much more manageable code that it's actually plausible for you to inject extra functionality into, which is what I wanted, because adding this grid was going to be messy enough without having to find where to put it in a spaghetti loop of code. Can, right? can I ask a dumb question? Uh, no such thing. <laughs> I'm trying to picture why you have a lot of event handlers. I don't think I have a lot of them. I have like... Um, okay, well, maybe? there's a, there's event handlers on every toggle for toggling on and off the currency. So it's one handler handling all of those, but right. that's an event handler. Right, that's one. There, There's an event handler for the add card interface. Yeah, that's two. And there's event handlers on the, uh, every time you enter the, change the number inside each card. Okay. Rip. And there's a document ready handler. So yeah, there's okay. four of them. Okay, so but I said three. Most of my code was in yeah. there. Okay. No, four, the document. Right, 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 right. But yeah, but it's always there. It's not something. It doesn't have to be. Okay. But you know what I mean? It, there's, not, there's not a user interaction that causes an event to happen for the document ready handler. I mean, refresh the page, I suppose, right? I was going to say loading the page is surely a pretty big event. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? When I counted three, I wasn't counting the document ready handler. So that didn't seem like a lot of uh, events. I thought you were saying you had like 20. That's why I was. Okay. I don't. The, the, maybe there's one or two others somewhere, okay. but off the top of my head, there probably the is because I don't have any other UI. Okay. Um, but yeah, all of my code was distributed across those event handlers, and the fact that there's only four of them actually makes that worse. So it means that each of those event handlers was probably more than a screenful. So then, when you find the piece of code, you have to go scrolling up to find out where it even is. That actually makes it worse. Okay. Right, so the code needed to be broken into small bite-sized chunks that were well named, because otherwise it becomes really hard to edit or maintain in the real world. Basically, it's a bad smell in software engineering terms. So the next thing that I want to draw your attention to, so I basically just made sensibly named functions and rewrote my event handlers to call those functions. But while rewriting all those functions, it soon became clear that I was doing the same thing over and over again in a few instances. And one of those, the same things, was validating a currency code. Because so many of my functions took as one, of, one or more of the arguments a currency code. Well, it's a currency converter, that's probably not surprising. Mm -hmm. 
So I wanted to check that my arguments were valid because I believe in defensive programming. I believe that you should proactively check every argument because it's quite likely to be full of garbage and you should react in an appropriate way with a sane error message. That way you can debug your own code later. So that meant copy, paste, copy, paste. And I got as far as copy, paste, copy, paste, copy. <laughs> no. So it was time to write a function to validate currency codes. But I thought this was an opportunity for a teachable moment because there is, I guess there's two extremist approaches to validation. The easiest extremist approach is not to bother. We just pretend all data is perfect and write our code accordingly. The code will be much shorter and it will arguably run a little bit faster until the point it doesn't run anymore and then you're just left scratching your head going, Ooh, something went wrong somewhere. Eep. Uh, and then the other extremist approach is I will tell you what I want and if it is even vaguely different, I will throw an error. I, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little confused way. on how your currency could be an error. Your currency is coming from the source. It's not from a, a human writing it. Well, the function, the function takes an argument from another function. So if there's, a, if there's a bug in your code in one function, that's then passing a value to another function. And the bug in the first function means that the value isn't what you think it is. Well, then the second function receives garbage. If your code does error checking, you'll know that's what's gone wrong because the error message will tell you because you're checking, catching, and throwing. In this example, though, the thing that would get handed from one to the other is a number, and it'll just be wrong, not recognizable as wrong. Uh, well, no, no. Okay, but you would know where in the code it went wrong. No, but how would, so then you, how would you know it was wrong? It came out as seven, and it should have been three. You don't know it should have been three. Because you don't know what the currencies That's are. That's not what I'm checking here. Yeah, so I'm I must be if I was given a valid code. So if my function expects to be handed a number and it gets handed an array, then there is a clear programming bug in the function that handed okay. the array. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Right? Okay, so it's, validating... it's not that you're checking to see if the currency code is right. You're checking to see, did you get a currency code? Well, a, currency, right. yes, a yes. currency rate. Yes, exactly. So okay. validation means that you got the type of thing you expect. Type of thing, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So as a very simple example, okay, so the one extremist way is not to check anything. And the other extremist way is to check every assumption. And if anything is even slightly wrong, throw an error. And that will result in code that is definitely correct when it runs. Mm. Because if anything was even slightly wrong, there will be errors flying all over the place. But it's needlessly harsh and causes needless wasted time. There is a third way, which is a concept called coercion. You should coerce your arguments into the form you want. So if you have a hypothetical function called reciprocal, which expects a single argument, then the extremist code would be something like if type of n not equal to number throw new type error, must be a number, mm -hmm. return one divided by n, right? So you're saying it must be an actual number, otherwise throw an error. If that passes, if we don't throw that error, then we return one divided by n. So that's a reciprocal. And so if you console.log reciprocal 42, you get back 0 0.0238, yada, yada, yada. And if you throw at the poop emoji, you get back type error. Okay. Fine. 
If you throw at the string 42, because maybe the user typed it in a text box and you're then passing it to your function, that'll throw an error. But that's actually a valid number. It's just it happens to be a string, perhaps because it came from a text box. Your code really should be able to deal with that kind of obvious, obvious scenario. And it should deal with it by making it be what you want it to be. You should coerce it to an actual number. And so we could rewrite that function using the coercion principle to say, you know, the number form of n, which I'm calling n num, becomes equal to number with a capital N, n. So that's the function for converting something to a number. So the, it's going to try to convert it to a number. It's going to try to convert okay. to a number. And if it fails, it will return nan, the special JavaScript value, not a number. Okay. So then we just have to do a quick check. So we're going to say, fine, whatever they gave me, try and make it be a number. And then we check whether we succeeded in that attempt to coerce. And we say, if is nan, throw new type error must pass a number. And then we can return one divided by our number. Okay, so you just let a lot more through that. I know what you meant. Is <laughs> what you did, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you coerced the value, if you're going to be all uh. snooty about it. So now when we pass it 42, it still does what it used to do. And we pass it a poop emoji, it still does what it used to do, as it should. But if we pass it the string 42, it will sensibly give us the reciprocal of 42, which is 0 0.2380, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So the second concept that I want to talk about is assertion. So coercion is where you, if possible, make the value be what you want. An assertion is where you basically state what you need reality to be. And if reality doesn't line up with your needs, you throw an error. So you would say that you assert that the second argument is an array. And if the second argument is anything but an array, an error should be thrown. And that's what an assertion is okay. in programming. So in order for a currency code to be valid, two things must be true. Right? So it must be three letters. It must be so. It must be a three-letter uppercase string, and that string has to correspond to an ISO forty-two seventeen code for one of the currencies my app supports. So it can't just be any uppercase three-letter string, right? Mm -hmm. You know, bug is an uppercase two-letter three-letter string, but it's not a valid currency code, so that should be thrown in error too. So in the end, I wrote a function called assert currency code, which will do one of two things. If the value is a three-letter string, but it happens to be the wrong case, it will silently convert it to uppercase and return it and not get cranky. It'll just, I'll fix that for you. Here you go. Here's the fixed value. But if it can't do that, if coercion fails, it falls back on assertion and throws an error. If it's not a string at all, it throws a type error. And if it is a string, but it's not a valid string, it actually, I decided to throw a type error here too. I could have thrown a range error. In fact, according to my documentation, I intended to throw a range <laughs> error. So that would be a typo in my code. Tended to be cleverer than that. Okay, I should fix that. And yeah, say when we're done, we return the uppercase version of the string. So does that make sense as an approach? So this way, if somehow we end up with EU or instead of capital EU or it's like, fine, that's fine. I'll just coerce that and return it. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't understand. I, I can see how this is a, a good structured way to do things, but I don't know how you would ever get something that wasn't that since we're asking the, the source 
Right, but you write the function as if you don't know where it's coming from because there could be something wrong anywhere between the source and you, right? The function has to be an island. The function has to stand alone. The function shouldn't make assumptions about what's outside it because what if you reuse this code sometime where you change a back end or something because the one we're using now gets retired or something, hmm. right? It's a good programming practice yeah. to have your functions behave as if they are a universe unto themselves. I have trouble picturing these kind of failures ahead of time. You know, even after you're describing it to me, I'm like going, yeah, but that would never happen. (laughs) It's a a lack of imagination on my part is what I'm saying. I would agree with that because the simple fact is you're human. Mm. It's not your fault. (laughs) You're human. And most software bugs comes about because it's something that literally never occurred to the programmer. So the, the concept of defensive programming is that you don't allow you, the human, to make those assumptions. You write your code as if anything's possible. And that way your code is very robust when the thing you never conceived of happens anyway. Yeah, the, not perfect, but you, but but you have to better. conceive of it. You have to conceive of it it's in order to, to, to do it. And, and like I said, the way I test my code is I hand it to Steve and Steve, you know, writes L or negative 42 or poop, you know, and it's like, God, I never would have thought of putting negative L, you know, <laughs> whatever. So it's a design principle, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not a guarantee, but it's, it's a way of thinking about your functions that it helps you write more robust code. Not perfect, because you're still a human. So then make mistakes, but it's more robust. So describe to me where in your coding process uh, you stop and do this. Because while I'm trying to write the code that to, to just get something done, I can't imagine stopping going, wait, let me think of every way this could go wrong and figure out how to write my errors. I, I know I'm not going to ah. do it then. And once I get it working, I want to play with the next thing. <laughs> so Okay, so I will... Right, I'll be writing, I'll be thinking through the problem, right? So you I know you do this because you shared a screenshot of your of your diagramming app where you you sort of you think about the structure, I do this and then I do this and then I do this, right? Mm-hmm. I've I've seen you do that kind of a breakdown. Mm-hmm. So I will generally do that kind of a breakdown in pseudocode, in comments in my actual coding file. And those comments will then get replaced with the name of a function I'm about to write. So then I'll go write the function. And the very, very first thing I write is the doc comment sitting above the function. Ah. Where I make myself describe what the function does mm. before I've written a single line of code for the function. Okay. And in there you write at your that errors point, too? Yes, because that's at throws is one of the things you have to think about, right? So at param, at return, at throws. What comes in, what comes out, and what could go wrong? Oh. That's the structure of the doc comment. So it forces me without having to think about it, to think about it, right? It's <laughs> but it also part of the process. It explains why it says you're going to throw a range error and then you sat down and wrote the code and paid no attention to your, to your, your documentation. because yep, I'm still human. <laughs> still human. Okay, okay. Interesting. But believe it or not, writing the English is usually the most revealing part because usually I will have said to myself, oh, this is easy. And then I start describing it and I go, ooh, ooh, there's a subtlety. Ooh, sugar, what about that edge case? Ooh, what do I do if? And writing that English often makes a lot of stuff fall out. So you ref- and then when the English is written... You refer to my diagramming tool. What I'm actually doing is writing. 
I'm, I'm, I'm scribbling by hand, but I happen to be using an iPad to do it. And so I can draw pictures and I can, and I can draw arrows and stuff like that. But mostly I'm writing text. I'm writing going, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to add it to that. I'm going to divide by this. I'm going to try to put this over here in the grid. Maybe it'll look something like this. Yeah. Well, I tend to do that with comments. So when you see my finished function there, there's one, two, three, four comments. The first time the first time I wrote that function, it would have had those comments there, followed by slash slash uppercase to do as a big shout. Okay. Under each one of those comments, and then I would have gone back and filled in each one of those comments. Now sometimes the to-do gets filled in with 10 lines of code, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So in this case, I probably wouldn't have bothered because it's such a simplistic function. But as a general rule, my I tend to document the function, then write out what the function should do as comments full of to-dos. And then I go back and fill in the to-dos. And that may involve writing another function, and so you end up going down the rabbit hole. But when you're done, you end up right back at the top of your code with a working solution. And at each time, I'm thinking, what should this function do? What goes in? What comes out? What could go wrong? What goes in? What comes out? What could go wrong? And that's my process. And if you design your functions as little islands like that, then you catch many more errors. Yeah, yeah. I can see how that would work. Okay. So that's the concept of coercion. And because we're using coercion, when I try to use this function within my code, I have to make sure to say name of argument becomes equal to assert currency code name of argument. So otherwise, my conversion to uppercase is lost. So you'll see in my very simplistic function to get the appropriate gr- uh, column in the grid for a given currency, it says, you know, the name of the first argument is cur code. And it says cur code becomes equal to assert currency code cur code. I do not understand that. Okay, so imagine that function was called and cur code was an array. That would immediately throw an error. Okay, so you're you're imagine taking it, fun- you're taking it, you're shoving it through that that assertion program, a function that you wrote to make sure that what is squirted mm-hmm. out is actually what you need it to be. Correct. Okay. So, okay. Okay. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Exactly. So it'd either throw an error or give you back an uppercase string. So you know for a fact that cur code from then on is an uppercase string. So you've got a stopper. You've got a error. stopper there too that says I'm not going to get past this point, and suddenly not Bingo. know where the problem was too. Precisely. So that's the concept of an assertion, right? Uh, you do not pass an assertion if it's not true. So you know that if you got by here without an error being thrown, then it really is an uppercase valid currency code as a string. Okay. Okay, good, good. And then the rest of your function, you can just make the assumption because you've asserted that assumption to be true. Right, right. So assertion is very powerful and coercion is very friendly. So you have a good cop, bad cop, right? Good cop will try coerce, uh, but if we fail, bad cop comes out and we assert. (laughs) Okay. So before you go on to the next section, I'm going to back you up Mm -hmm. to something you skipped. I noticed that your code... I opened up your index.html and it was like 278 lines long. And I'm like, how come mine's like double that? And I looked and I was like, You're where's right. the JavaScript? Because you did something else. I, had I did. I forgot to mention yeah. it because I skipped over my own show notes. It's in the show notes. We just did Right, right. Yes. So I, that, so I, I knew got... it was in the show notes because I was like, wait a minute, what did he do? He better explain this. And then I saw it and you went right past it. So, But I wanted to wait till you're done that with that part. No, thank you for that, actually, because that train of thought was good. Um, Yeah, so I got really, really tired of scrolling up and down between my view or my templates and my data structure and my code because I'd be trying to write a piece of code and I'm like, what did I call that (laughs) property within my data structure? 
Scroll up, scroll up, scroll up. Okay, where was I? I was on line 320. Oh, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. What did I call that div? What ID did I give that div? Scroll down, <laughs> scroll down, scroll down. It's driving me absolutely potty. And the longer the code got, the worse it got. So I split it out into an HTML file, which has all the templates in it, a an index.js file that has the real code in it, and a, a currency data.js file that has my data structure in it. And then I can just use tabs to jump between those three things and never have to scroll. So my, my solution my was I opened up to as many as three uh, I, 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 three copies of the same file in VS Code. You can have them in tabs. You can say split right. It gives you another copy. So one of them would scroll to the top, one to the bottom. But of course, the piece I needed was in the middle. So then a third one would get spawned. Um, I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued. I love this idea, first of all. I mean, it, it, I'm not 100% happy with my code, which maybe I never will be. And maybe that's just the fun of this one. Nope, never. Okay. Not going to happen. And there's still this one little piece I'm trying to get to work and it's not working yet. But um, I might do this before I do that uh, to split out the JavaScript. But you're saying you, you, it, so your templates are now with your HTML, which you, you taught us to make the template files separate. And I never put the, mine in. But if I took my JavaScript out, I could see putting my templates in with my HTML. But what is currencydata.js? Okay, so you build your data structure from scratch. I don't. Right? What, so what do I have a database a data of currencies I choose to support. You can open the file and have a look. Is it a JSON file? No, it's a JavaScript file. JavaScript but file, it's I'm, I'm, just defines a variable called currencies that defines my currencies. You build this data structure by making an AJAX request to that ISO whatever stuff. Right. So you build it. I just wrote it as a variable. But I don't I don't understand what's in currency.js. <laughs> so I think I just lost Bart right here. Am I oh, back? you are back. Ah. You are back. There he is. Good question. Ooh, that was weird. Quick enough that I don't have... I'm not going to edit that out. Okay, let's keep going. So you said, yeah, I'm looking at your code, but I see... Yeah, so what is... I don't quite know what you mean by data structure. You keep saying a word that doesn't jump out at a me. Dictionary. Oh, but yeah, that's a that's a JSON file. Oh, okay. No, it says var no. currencies equaled at the beginning and the rest of it, it could just be a JSON. It could. Okay, so JSON is based on JavaScript syntax, but it's just... A, Okay, so I do have something very similar to that. So what? uh, But mine is that I pulled the one thing I don't do dynamically is the ISO forty two seventeen data. So I just pull that file down and I've got it. I don't I don't pull that one every time. Okay, so I thought you were at one stage pulling that one each and rebuilding it every time. Well, no, I don't. I don't build it at all. I just all it is is a lookup table to go find out what the name. Like if you see see BKH or whatever, you know what it. What is that currency? Because I have a whole bunch of currencies. I know what they are. That's very similar then, because that's exactly what this is. It's a dictionary slash lookup table for every currency. It says its English name, its symbol. It's icon, yeah. whether or not to display it by default, and how many decimal places it has, because someone made me <laughs> So in, in your case, you... Um, so this is one of the reasons I ended up with so many... Uh, like I said, I have an array that turns it... Or Ajax call turns into an array that turns it into an object that turns it into an object was because I was merging these two different files together. 
the Ajax call to the uh, currency.io place and then this JSON file that I had of uh, all the data from ISO 4217 and looking them up between the two of them and making another one. That's what caused all my multiple files to get created on the way. Okay, so yeah, so that I hope that explains that. Yeah, but that's interesting. I never would have thought to pull the JavaScript out, and I was going to go. Well, you never told us how to. Oh, he just made it a file, and he calls it with a script. Duh. <laughs> yeah, no magic, I'm afraid. Okay, very basic stuff. Okay, so have you gotten to start okay. making anything new yet? Remember, I said three quarters <laughs> of my time was spent. Getting ready to make something new. Yeah. Well, that's a bit how this show is okay. going. Um, so finally, with all of that homework done, I could make my grid because I had all the data I wanted and my code was in a state where I could add features to it without causing myself too much of a headache. So the first thing I said about doing was making visual room for the grid to occupy. Mm -hmm. And I made a decision that I was going to share the UI for controlling which currency rates to show between the two views. I made the same so decision, in, yeah. Yeah, because it made sense to me, right? If I care about the, 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 the Hong Kong dollar, I care about the Hong Kong dollar. Whether I see it on a card or a table, I care just as much. So why would they be different? Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I did was I, I rejiggered my existing UI so that the add currency card form ended up as the last card in the deck. And then the currency, the one to pick the rows in my cards was on its own in the sidebar. And that then freed me up to turn the area where the currency cards are into a tab pane. So the currency cards kind of just, you know, move into a tab and then there's a new tab available for the table. And that sounds simple enough, but actually in terms of my calls and my rows and my containers, that was a huge rewrite. And so what I was left with was breakpoints that were crazy. So as I resized my window, everything would just go from stupid to ridiculous to bonkers. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Because I'm real yeah, good so at my that, first, too. So my first thought was, oh, I'll just fix this. That was a terrible thought. I wasted at least half an hour of swearing at things. And then I remembered my own advice to you. Strip all the classes out and start over. Mm. So I stripped all the classes out, oh, wow. all the responsive classes. Mm -hmm resized my window to the very smallest size, just like the bootstrap docs tell you to do. Always start with the excess breakpoint, make it work there, and then go up one breakpoint at a time, fixing anything that needs fixing. Mm -hmm. So I followed bootstrap's advice, got it to work right for a phone size screen, then to SM, then to MD, then to LG, and then to XL. And little by little, I just added in some little bits and bobs. So there's some clever little things I'm rather proud of. Um, so you'll see that the tabs have... Um, an icon, and when they're in a wide view, they have a long name. They say currency cards and conversion table. Mm -hmm. But at some breakpoints, the tabs are a bit tight, and so it actually just says the icon and cards and table. Oh, nice. Nice. Now, I'm, yeah, curious, so again, I'm curious about one thing, though. Um, why did you choose to put the uh, toggle switches to choose the rates at the bottom? Because in most views, it's not even there. On the cards tab. Because I think that's less important because I chose the big important world currencies with the intention of being what most people want most of the time. And so I thought when you go to a currency rate, the first thing I'd like to see is some currencies. 
Hmm. But you don't know that you can do anything else. I, I didn't I didn't well, see it. Yeah. it just even on a big screen. I was like, what is he talking about about this extra tab? And then I made my window longer and saw, oh, you can choose rates. I, I did it the other way around. I put the, the toggles at the top. Mine are not pretty like yours because there's 33 in mine because I took the, I did all the countries. Um, so it's the massive amount of my screen. And most of my time was spent trying to make those stupid things look right at different sizes. But yeah. Yeah, we could have an argument about which is better. I, I, I think I sort of go with, I chose good defaults, therefore the toggles are less important, so I'll put them at the bottom and the currency rate should be front and center because that's what the app is for. So let but, everybody know that Bart doesn't think New Zealand dollars were important because they're not on the front. You don't get those at the beginning. <laughs> nah, apologies, Alistair. <laughs> you, while it is a beautiful country, I do not believe it is a world power. Uh, I, don't, I don't see uh, the Chinese one on here. I probably should be, arguably, but I'm a Western biased person. Okay, clearly. so you ju- you show Euro, British pound, and US dollar, and you have to go down to find out you can do more. Yeah, although with actually, now in fairness, within each one of those major, major currencies, I do actually show the New Zealand dollar and the Chinese... Japanese no, yen. The yen. Yeah. The Japanese yen I do, but not the Chinese. That's... <laughs> arguably silly. Okay, but... You, anyway, we can debate my racism. <laughs> okay. Now. It is an interesting oh choice. Um, yeah. And you can't have everything, so you kind of have to pick which is your least favorite child. <laughs> right? Right. Okay. It doesn't fit the phone screen, so yeah, I hate making those decisions, mm-hmm. and I could argue with myself each way. But had to pick one. Pick that one. You pick the other one. So with that done... It was time to actually build me grid, since I now had some space for it. Um, and ultimately, at the root of it all, I decided to use a bootstrap table, specifically a small bootstrap table, to do my best to fit as much of it as I could into the screen at once. Because there's a lot of data here that needs to be displayed. Uh, the first thing to note, the physicist in me would say that rates are a dimensionless number. So they have no unit, right? It's just a number. There is no unit. It's not, it's not you know, 1.1491 somethings. It's just 1.1491. So the amount of decimal places is not determined by the currencies involved. It's, it's a rate. There is, there is no currency. So initially, I just picked two decimal places because that seems like a sane default. And then I showed every currency on the grid, and a whole bunch of them said zero. <laughs> Oh, sugar. I don't think it's true that if I take five Hong Kong or one Hong Kong dollar, I get absolutely nothing in any currency. I've always got to get something, right? Like a thousand Hong Kong dollars, I can't get nothing. So obviously I need more decimal places. So I tried three. Yeah, still a few zeros. So I tried four. All the zeros went away. Four digits it is. I don't have that kind of luxury, Bart. I got 33 countries in my table. You barely see what you're doing with uh, just two decimal places. So I thought about them as uh, not as dimensionless units, but as like one AUD is 0.87 Canadian dollars. And so I did it. I did mine to the number of decimal places that are, are correct for the country. Huh. Okay, the physicist in me can hear my my old physics teacher talking about uh, Dimes- dimensionless units. Dimensionless, yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I usually got in trouble for the opposite, which is forgetting my dimensions and being told, what, four elephants? For what? Volts? <laughs> Meters? Seconds? Uh, many, many times. Anyway, um, the next thing then is even with the table made small, and even with not too many currencies showing by default, and even with less than 33 currencies, if you hit all those toggle switches on, still doesn't fit on a reasonable size screen. So what to do? Well, Bootstrap has support for, scroll for horizontally scrollable tables. So I use that. Now, Bootstrap, for reasons I cannot comprehend, calls horizontally scrollable tables responsive tables. Okay. Silly name. Docs were good. Follow the docs. It works. And it only becomes scrollable when it needs to. So if you toggle off more and more currencies, you can get away without this scrolling. Okay, so you're... Uh... Yeah, you're talking about scrolling the 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 whole table scrolls back and forth. Yes, horizontally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What I've been struggling to try to do is make it so that, and this is where I've managed to burn seventy or eighty hours, is trying to find a way to hold the uh, the header row and the header the the left column still while everything else scrolls. Because again, thirty-three countries, it's really hard to look at with without some header rows, uh, and it's it's a just a anarchy. <laughs> that is not straightforward to do. Mm -mm. If you get it working, it will be extremely pleasing. <laughs> I, I, it will be an achievement. I have fleetingly gone through times where things didn't look horrible, and then then those like like a feather in the wind, it's gone. <laughs> Oh. oh, it's fun, though. I've had a blast. Well, good. So the next step in the process for me was figuring out the template and the view to render the table. Now, you have rows containing cells. So with my years of programming experience, my Miji went, fine, that's a two-dimensional array followed by a nested loop. Because that's pretty much always the case when you have a grid of things. It's going to be a two-dimensional array followed by a nested loop. So it's going to, you know, your, your data structure is going to have two dimensions, and so is your loop. Right. So I, within my code, I had already consolidated the views I use for my templates because whether you're rendering the list of possible toggle switches for the currency rate chooser, whether you're listing the possible cards, sorry, whether you're building the possible cards or whether you're building the form for adding cards, the actual information you're displaying is basically the same, or rather they're different subsets of one set of data. So I actually had one view that I used for all of those templates, which I called currency control view. And that view has everything I need for the rows in my grid but not the column. Yeah, the columns. So, the columns are the tricky part because because a table yeah. doesn't. The data in a table does not know what column it's in. It has no information about that. So you have to teach yep. each cell who are what. Who am I? Yes. I thought that was. Or, I thought that was really fun to work on. By the way, is it mind? It, it is because it's an important thing to do. So I decided to make my view very redundant so in my in my view every row has all the rates in it for every possible currency 
because everything in JavaScript is done by reference. So it's not actually duplicating data. It's just I have lots of references to the same data in my data structure. So say that again. Every view had what? This okay, so the, the view has a, a, at its top level, the view consists of a list named currencies. And for each currency, it's, an, it's a dictionary with code, name, symbol, icon, default display, decimal places, okay. et cetera. Right, so that's my original currency control view. So it has one of those dictionaries for every currency. And what I decided to do was to add, to create a clone of that dictionary, to create a clone of that view, and then add into it another array inside each dictionary, which had all the information again for every currency it was converting to. Oh, wow. And that sounds like massive duplication. But JavaScript does everything by reference. So all you're doing is referring to the one copy of the data over and over again. So it's not actually inefficient. It just means that when you come to write your template, the data you want is right there in front of you. Hmm. So it makes I'm your template very easy to write. I'm trying to think why you needed to do that. I don't think I well, did Well, within that. each cell, I want to know, know who I am. Yes. In every possible way. I gave, I taught each... TD, who it was by by looping through and telling it who its column was and who its row was. So, like the 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 one that's the intersection of CAD and CNY would say, uh, you know, double squiggly CAD or double squiggly the row country and double squiggly the column country or currency. Yeah, I didn't do it that way. So I basically went. My outer, my outer object is just a list of currencies, and inside each currency is a list of conversions, which is, again, the list of currencies. Hmm. That file never exists, right? Well, it, I build it as a view, right. so I, I show you my JavaScript for building that view, but it's just a data structure I build, uh -huh. and then pass it to the mustache. Right. And I build it by cloning my original view and then adding in the extra conversions list. Hmm. So cloning, because everything is by reference, you can't just copy a dictionary. You have to copy each entry in the dictionary, and you could do that with loops, but that's effort. And why reinvent the wheel when someone else has made a perfectly good wheel for hmm. you? So this was a good excuse for me to tell you about one of my favorite wheels out there. Which I, there which is I found on my own. You did. I was really happy to see that you, when I said, when I mentioned I was using Lodash, you're like, oh yeah, I found that. I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> so Lodash contains a whole bunch of utility functions that in my opinion should just be part of JavaScript. They shouldn't need an open source library to house them. They should just be part of JavaScript. And if you're wondering why it's called Lodash, it's spelled L-O-D-A-S-H, but it's pronounced Lodash which is a euphemism for underscore, because what it is is a fork of an older open source project called underscore. Oh. And basically the maintainers of underscore were too slow to the liking of the guy who wrote Lodash. And he was like, I am fed up of waiting on the underscore people to do what I want. I'm going to take their code, make it do what I want, as well as what it already does, and give it a new name. Ta-da, Lodash, which is a pun on underscore. And I basically think the Lodash guys are doing a much better job of maintaining their code than the underscore guys, so I'm a Lodash user. His name is John David Dalton, by the way. Just just looked him go. up for some reason. 
So the the reason I uh, installed it was because I needed to make a deep clone. Why did you install it? Well, that's exactly what I oh, did. Okay. So I'd have my view that I wanted to clone. Well, it needs to be a deep clone because it's, you know, dictionaries within dictionaries. So I ended up using underscore dot deep clone, just like you did. So you do realize what happened. Your dream has come true. I'm looking things up on my own and figuring them out and finding the tools I need. That is extremely satisfying. <laughs> extremely satisfying. So anyway, with all my deep cloning and everything, I end up with my view object containing the data in a basically in the same shape as the table. So then when it comes to writing my template, it's actually quite straightforward, but it is a loop through all of my currencies to make the headings, followed by a loop through all of my currencies to make the rows, and then inside the loop to make the rows is a second loop to make the cells. So it's a loop, and then a loop within a loop. And hey presto, you have a table. And did you do that looping in JavaScript or in Mustache? Mustache. Yeah. So because my view object was a structured in the same structure as what I've just described, it was very easy to write the mustache. Yeah, once I remembered the double squirrely bracket dot thing that you taught us, which might have been Dorothy reminding me that that existed, sounds like something she would have had to have reminded me about, then I knew how to do the loop within the loop. Yeah, and Alison, could you just remind me that I need to do that fix I have to do whenever I include mustaches in the show notes because mustaches have a meaning to GitHub. Oh, okay. So they're all gone from the from the code sample. <laughs> okay. I need to fix that. I remember how to. I just forgot to do it. Ah, anyway. Okay, so the next thing I just wanted to point out is that uh, while it is common to have TD cells always be in the T head, sorry, TH cells to always be in the T head and TD cells to always be in the T body, that's not actually how it works. TD and TH are both table cells, and they can go into either the head table heading or the table body, or indeed the table footer, if you like. Uh, they have a semantic meaning. TH stands for a table heading, and TD stands for table data. So if you have a grid where you have headings on two axes, then you should actually use TH tags for the headings on both axes because they're not data, they're heading. So, so I, I got, I thought about this a lot and I didn't come to any conclusion that I understood it. Why, what, it, what is the purpose of having a T head before the THs? And then, okay, so the T, go ahead. The T head is there to tell screen readers that this part of the table is not part of the data contained within the table. It is a description of the table. Okay. So it would work, but it would be less accessible. Otherwise known as not working, by the way. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. And Bootstrap would not make your table look right because Bootstrap assumes that you're a good person who takes care of everyone. Okay. So T head... You put your THs in there, but then, then yeah, I think you and I talked about this because you, you suggested if I called my left column, uh, if I called those THs, then Bootstrap would make it look nice for me. It would make it bold or yes. whatever. Correct. Okay. And it would tell screen readers 
that this is not a piece of information. This is not a piece of data. This is a piece of information describing the data. So again, it's semantically correct to say this, you know, so the label dollar CAD is not a rate, right? It's a table of rates. That's dollar CAD is not a rate. It's a heading. Right. Whereas, you know, the two columns over 0.6498, that's a rate. So that's a TD. Okay. So I sort of look at it as the inverse. If it's data, it's a TD. If it's not data, then it can't be a TD, so it must be a TH. Okay. So let me ask you one question I don't think you said. Are you building the table every time somebody hits a toggle? Nope. I am using the same model I used last time and the same model I used for my cards. I build everything, hide everything, and then show what I consider to be the defaults. So... How are you getting, you've got some nice striping of the, of the rows. The striping of the oh, rows you're you just get using the hover. Because it's bootstrap. That's the hover. Yeah, bootstrap. Yeah, so bootstrap is a class called table-hover, so right, that gives right. me the rows nicely striped. Okay, but they're not, well, they're not actually striped. They're only, it's only, it grays it when you get over it. Sorry, yes, there's a table-striped, I think. Yeah, but guess what it. happens when you do that? <laughs> if, you, I, if you get rid oh, of a country, you get you two grays next to wrong. each other. Yeah. You get like two grays I, and two whites and then another gray and then a white and it, and I've I haven't figured out a way around that. So I've got hover too, but I like the stripes. Cuz did I mention I have 33 countries? To, you would need to do them in JavaScript, I think. Mm, that's possible, huh? Where you would every time you toggle a currency, you would then loop through all of your rows. Are you, am I visible? Yes or no. If I'm visible, what was my previous, what was the previous color I used? Use the other one. Next one. Are you visible? Yes or no. Oh, no, 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 no. They're not independent though. It depends on what's next to it. Which one? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So you start at the top of the table and you check, is the row at the top of the table currently visible? If, if it's not visible, skip it. If it is visible, color it your first color. And then, Remember that you've just colored something pink. Oh, okay, okay. Then you go to the next I thought you row said say, are you visible? I thought you were saying it's its own previous state. You mean the state of the one before it? Correct. So you need to have a loop that loops through, and only on the visible ones does it alternate. Yeah, I'm probably not going to do that, but it's neat to think that I could. <laughs> it, it would be a bit messy to write the code, but actually when the code is written, it would be short. Yeah, it's the logic, right? Yes, once you work it out, it should actually be very short, simple code. But yeah, it's easy once you've it written. Really easy once you've it written. Um, <laughs> that mountain's really easy to climb when you're at the top. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can spend an entire day in work, and when I look at what I've achieved, it's one short function, and you're thinking, how could that have taken a whole day? But, you know, a good, a good simple, easy-to-read function is not a sign that it was an easy task. It's a sign that you did the task well. Yeah, if you spent all the time and it was a stupid function, it was 400 lines long, that wouldn't be better. Exactly. So the other thing I did, just like before, is to, to make the hiding and showing plausible, I used data attributes to embed into the TORs and the TDs, and indeed the THs, um, what currency row and column they belong to. So basically data-row-currency equals, say, euro, and data-call-currency equals euro. So if I want to hide the euro, I've got to find all the rows and calls that are data-whatever-euro mm -hmm. and hide them and show them. 
jQuery. So that's straightforward enough. So I I um, did that, but I did it with the um with the Bootstrap show hide or uh, collapse Bootstrap mm-hmm. collapse. So I'm I didn't use uh JavaScript to do do it. You didn't use JavaScript. <laughs> well, right. Okay, okay, but the the plugin provider did, right? Yeah, Bootstrap uses. So remember that Bootstrap uses jQuery to make all of its magic, all of its JavaScripty mm-hmm. magic happen. So basically, Bootstrap wrote the JavaScript code that calls jQuery to show hide. But you didn't have to. You just used some data attributes to give it. But let me tell you, you know, those data, data attributes were tricky, apps. right? Because the data attri- that's where the data attribute had to know who it was. Yes. That that yes. was Oh yeah, no, that that was yeah. That was fun. I mean, on the one hand, no JavaScript that you had to write. On the other hand, quite a bit of thinking. Yeah. Once I had it down, it, it, I I got it, but uh once I got to the top of that mountain, it was easy to climb. Um Yeah. Yeah. The 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 one place I did end up uh doing it with an event handler at all just show hide and and I want to tell the audience this cuz I think it, it was very very interesting was I was using oh well, Dorothy suggested what about a show all hide all button and she had that on hers and I said oh yeah that sounds really cool I'll put that in and the way I had it do it was I had it say okay uh go find AUD AUD hide it go find AUD CAD hide it go down AUD CNY hide it and that would have worked on a 10 by 10 grid, but on a 33 by 33 grid, uh, let's see, 33 squared is, uh, actually it's 34 squared because I've got, um, I've got the, uh, the headers too. 1156 cells minus one, the one in the corner has nothing in it. 1155 separate calls going, okay, hide, okay, hide, okay, hide. It took five full seconds for it to hide. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't scale very no. well. Yeah, you're it right worked there. real good on ten by ten, but uh, that's when I begrudgingly said, "Okay, I better write a function to to do that." Fine. Yeah, I I gave each of my um, calls a class. What did I call it? Something sensible like um, currency grid row, mm-hmm. and I gave all of my cells currency grid cell, and then my hide my initial initially I hide everything, so I just hide everything that's dot. Uh, currency grid row and dot currency grid cell and then it just all hide instantly um, and then I just show them one at a time or hide them one at a time as you click the toggles okay. and because I don't have 30 something currencies I didn't bother with the show all hide all ah uh, okay well it does take a long time to check all those boxes so Bart I'd love a show hide uh, show all hide all button on that yeah, yeah I'm done <laughs> I'm drawing a line um, but one final thing before we do draw that line, I just want to draw your attention. So at this point, I've you know I had a fully working solution that I could have presented as the final answer, but I decided I had a bit of time left over, so I did a little bit of fit and finish, as I call it, a bit of you know spit and polish on the end. And two that I think make a particularly big difference are the use of Bootstrap's tooltip to add in context that I just couldn't physically fit in the table otherwise. I think this so is the coolest thing table- you did, actually. Thank you. Um, while my table doesn't scroll until it really has to, I get away with it not scrolling purely by being really terse. So it doesn't say Canadian dollars. It just has the three-letter code and the symbol. And while a lot of people, particularly Canadians, know that their currency is CAD, it's not as user-friendly as it could be. So I decided to add the context back in using Bootstrap's of a tooltip component. 
And so the way that works is that you put the extra information in the title attribute, and then the tooltip turns those title attributes into pretty little popovers. So now when you hover over any of the headings, it tells you what they are in English. The other bit of context that's not easy to see on the grid is, so the, a rate is from one currency to another. So which is the from and which is the to, right? Mm -hmm. I decided my from should be the, the, on the left and the to should be across the top. I think that's... But how can you tell that? Oh, I see. I think that's the way these tables are done. <laughs> it is. I sort of had a look around and everyone seems to do it that way. So you could argue that it's obvious by being the same as everyone else, but it's not obvious. So why not just put the word from and the word to into those titles? So when you hover over the euro in the top, it says to euro. And when you hover over the euro as the column header, it says from euro. Like, oh, okay. I get it. Oh. Rows are from, the columns are too. No, but see, you should highlight the whole column part when you hang hold over the column headings. I thought about that, and A, it's really hard to do, and B, I didn't necessarily think it achieved all that much because I decided instead to put a call out on each cell that actually says right there what it actually does. So instead of you having to look up and down, you yeah. can just see it right there. It says Euro 2 Hong Kong Dollar. Yeah, I like that a lot. Unfortunately, those don't uh, don't work on iOS. I know that is an annoying side effect of touch interfaces. Um, and you don't have straight rows either. It is accessible to screen readers. It is accessible to screen readers because it uses the title attribute, which is one of the standard attributes, not some sort of weirdo stuff. So that is at least something. Hmm. I wonder if it works on voiceover on the uh, on the iPhone. Well, it's available to any implementation of accessibility if it wants to expose it in some way. I, I won't guarantee that it is exposed in a sensible way on every implementation. And the last thing I did was I added a little bit of custom CSS to actually highlight the current cell within the current row as you hover over it. So that's just td.currencygridcell colon hover, background color colon dark gray. Yeah, that's nice. By the way, with voiceover turned on, I got the, mm -hmm. uh, the tooltip showed up. I wonder if it was just pressing hard that caused that. Or is it press and hover shows tooltips? Does it? Because that does work. Like if you want to get the alt text for an image you just you just tap and hold i do that on xkcd all the time hmm. interesting sensible anyway that is what i had planned to say about my sample solution is there anything else you want to raise before i give you a new challenge oh new challenge huh yes the tooltips yes. do come well, up without voiceover just know, verifying that uh yeah pardon yeah we're uh so we get something new. Oh, no, not the clock. Yeah, does, again, I have an ulterior motive, but I won't tell you what it is because that will completely spoil the fun. Um, so we, now that we're on this sort of idea where we have episodes where we do challenges and episodes where we do other stuff, this challenge is going to tide you over another, basically, there's going to be two in-between episodes where we do stuff, and then we're back to this challenge in PBS 95. Okay. So that should set an expectation for the level of difficulty here. So this would be six weeks in theory? Yeah, six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So again, it sounds straightforward, but don't let that fool you. Um, also, I'm expecting a little bit of independent learning. Mm -hmm. So again, that's proven not to be a problem since you got to underscore or low dash before me. Um, anyway, our challenge is to create another web app 
where we are going to allow the user to see the time in another time zone of their choosing. When I say the time, I mean the current time. Uh, so this first version of the challenge is going to be a minimum viable product, as the startup jargon goes. So your clock should show the current time and allow the user to control four things. The time zone, the current time is shown in. Whether or not the clock is in 12 hours or 24 hours. Whether or not the clock shows seconds. Whether or not the clock shows little pulsing dividers between the parts of the time. Now, rather than doing your own time zone conversion maths, which you could attempt to do, I would strongly advise against that. Because time is hard. <laughs> So you can either use JavaScript's built-in date functions, which is only marginally less frustrating than doing it yourself in first principles. Okay. They're not very good. And because JavaScript's built-in date functions are not very good, it probably won't come as a surprise that the open source community has, has tackled the problem and come up with solutions. Now, you're welcome to go off and Google for your own solutions, and you'll find there's many, you know, there's other options out there. But I am happy to tell you that I believe the single best JavaScript date and time manipulation library is called moment.js. I, I adore moment.js as much as I adore Lodash, as much as I adore jQuery. Oh, wow. I think it is superbly written code. Very powerful. And moment.js itself does really cool data arithmetic, which is amazing. Uh, but it has an optional extension to add to its wonderful data arithmetic capabilities time zone support. And so I would suggest using moment.js with its time zone module. And I will, you know, so on the one hand, you have to do some reading and do some learning. On the other hand, it will probably save your sanity. I'm still confused on what this project is. How is it a world clock if you're only showing it in one time zone? Well, the user gets to choose. So where does it say that the user chooses that? Uh, it says the, allow the user to control the following. One, two, three, four. So the... Okay. I might have you rewrite that first sentence because it doesn't read quite the way I would have said it. The time zone, the clock shows the current time in. Choose the time zone. Yeah, It just confused me, the first sentence. I got it. Uh, okay, so they get to choose what, what time zone they're looking at, and then they get to choose 12 mm -hmm. or 24-hour time, whether or not to have seconds, mm -hmm. and whether or not the clock shows pulsing dividers between parts of the time. Oh, this is an analog? I mean, a digital clock? I was going to make an analog clock. Uh, <laughs> well, if you want an analog clock, then choose whether or not to animate the second hand. Okay. <laughs> I, I probably won't now that you've said that, but I just immediately pictured an analog clock. Uh, we haven't done animation, so I would never have assumed to set the challenge of doing it, it an analog animation. Okay. That would that would be doable using the canvas and some stuff we haven't learned. Okay. Okay. Probably not. That would then. be hard. That would be no, that would be six months. Not six months. Okay. Hey, I, I have an idea. There's something we okay. have never done, and I don't know where we would put this, but I would like any of the students who have created a uh, done the homework to send it to me and we'll post Why it somewhere. Slack? 
Well, it depends on whether it's Slack. Let's make it easy. I mean, if you're in Slack, you can give okay. it to us in the in the PBS uh, Slack. But I'd like to post them somewhere to say here's here's where people the solutions people came up with and what they look like. I'd I'd love to see the different uh, solutions. I know Dorothy has one. I don't know whether Dorothy will share or not, but it's very pretty. It's very cool. It works really well. We'll have to have a little think about that offline, but that is actually a really nice idea, a little gallery of the various solutions yeah. people have now created. Yeah, and, and you know, when we get to the end of one of these, I think that'd be really fun. So uh, you can email that to me at allison at podfeet.com, or you could put it in our Slack, or you could put it in our Facebook group, but probably Slack if you want Bart to see it. Uh, and, and we'll figure out some place to, uh, to post it. Yeah, we'll figure something out. There's options. Interesting. That's not so great idea. I want to see. I want to see what people have done. Yeah, if you want to share, no, no requirement to share though. Yes, and also if you share in the Slack, you can share and say, "Don't publish it," but here's what I did, and that's perfectly fine too. And you know, those of us in the Slack community get to enjoy it, but we don't publish it any wider than that if that makes you more comfortable. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Bart. Well, this Excellent. was fun. Well, good. Um, so that yeah, that that's pretty much it. So uh, until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.